Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business that is pushing the boundaries of science to deliver new cancer medicines. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about advances in the treatment of prostate cancer with Dr. Joseph Kim. Dr. Kim is Associate Professor of Internal Medicine and Medical Oncology at Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Gore is a Professor of Internal Medicine and Hematology and Director of Hematologic Malignancies at the Yale Cancer Center. So, you know, um, you know, as a cancer doctor, everybody's family has some friend who knows somebody who knows somebody who's got prostate cancer and they want my opinion, which of course I'm not a prostate cancer doc, so I try to help them as a layperson. And, and a lot of this always, you know, focuses either around, uh, you know, screening for prostate cancer or more often management of early stage prostate cancer, uh, whether they get surgery or radiation or whatever. But but that's really not where you get involved with patients. Is that right? That's correct. Yep. So you, so you would be uh, somebody that the patients would see uh, if their prostate cancer is more advanced? That's correct. Yep. Uh-huh. But I do, um, you know, talk to our patients about, uh, you know, PSA screening, and uh, I give lectures about this topic often. You know, many of these patients, you know, by the time they end up in my clinic, um, they go through all this PSA testing, definitive treatments, their cancer unfortunately comes back, and having to see me to discuss further treatment options. Got it. So, so you're the guy that none of us wants to see, right? Correct, in a way. Yeah, but I'm happy to take care of my patients. No, and and we're so glad that you're there to do so and do it so well. Um, so you know, I, I think you know we obsess, men obsess, and I've had two people in my family recently gone through this and obsess about the, uh, you know, the the best strategy that's going to minimize their chance of having a recurrence of cancer and maintain their ability to contain their urine and perform sexually if that's important to them. And now this indignity that somehow the cancer came back anyway, that's, that's got to be devastating for patients. Right, yeah. Because, you know, many of our patients, they, um, you know, live with their disease for a long time and they go through a lot of ups and downs, you know, during their disease course, mm-hmm. you know. As you mentioned, uh, many of our patients have complications from their prior therapy. As you mentioned, some urinary incontinence at times. It could be uh, sexual, you know, uh, impotence. Um, and uh, by the time they get to us, um, you know, they develop, you know, spread of the cancer that's causing some symptoms such as pain, you know, weight loss, loss of appetite. Uh, and, uh, you know, we try to find uh, really good treatments, you know, for our patients. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, are these patients uh, being uh, undergoing surveillance by their urologist or internist along the way for recurrence? Or is it just you kind of wait and see and someday somebody comes in with bad back pain or something? Yeah, so it, it sort of depends. You know, for patients who underwent definitive treatment, such mm-hmm. as surgery or radiation treatment, usually a radiation oncologist or urologist, for the most part, actually follow these patients after their surgery. They follow with a PSA, blood tests, you know, to detect the PSA level. Uh, and they follow their symptoms. Um, you know, if they see a PSA rising, 
um, they prompt you know another discussion um, whether we need to do another treatment versus continue to watch um, and depending on how fast the PSA rises um, so often it uh, initiates another treatment uh, mm. often it can be in the form of hormonal injections um, and uh, you know, also uh, by the time they develop uh, cancer spread on the scan, um, they also prompt another discussion about how to treat those cancers. I see. So, so sometimes are you treating people just because their blood level of PSA has risen and there's no evidence on a scan or anything else of uh, tumors anywhere? That's correct. We, we, we don't, it doesn't always mean that we have to treat this, actually. So it depends on two settings. For patients who have never made hormonal treatment before, just rising PSA, after surgery or radiation uh, treatment, um, you know, if the PSA remains uh, very low in level, then one could do a different radiation treatment. We'll continue to watch. If, however, PSA rises too quickly, too fast, and higher levels, then sometimes this may indicate uh, initiating hormonal treatment. Um, the, another scenario is that patients who's been on hormonal treatment all this long, uh, and they still have rising PSA, uh, and have no disease on the CAT scan or the bone scan, then actually uh, one of the latest research indicate that we could actually start a uh, new, hormonal, uh, new hormonal pills, actually, to delay the time of developing metastatic disease. How interesting. So when you say hormonal treatment, um, what exactly do you mean? I, I, I certainly know back in the old days, and I'm older than you, uh, patients often uh, were castrated surgically, what's better, more politely called orchiectomy, but basically is castration to get rid of their testosterone. And, and they used to take a, a female hormone, diethylstilbestrol, uh, you know, uh, is that what we're talking about? Yeah, um, so you're exactly right. You know, before the invention of these hormonal injections, uh, we used to do orgiectomy, removal of the testicles, uh, surgical castration. But, um, you know, now we have, uh, you know, hormone injection that is designed to suppress the making of the testosterone from the testicles. Mm. Um, we have, you know, a couple of, you know, what we call GNH antagonists or agonists. Um, these are often used by urologists. Uh, and uh, this treatment alone can actually lower the PSA, uh, can lower the testosterone and can lower the PSA and can control the disease, uh, disease for a long period of time. I see. Mm -hmm. Now, um, as a guy, um, I hear about lowering testosterone and, uh, you know, we see a lot of ads for people who want to, you know, build up their T, whatever, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, what impact does this uh, lowering of testosterone have on... Um, well, a variety of things. Uh, I'm particularly thinking of sexual function. Understand, you know, um, with hormone injections, the first thing that patients experience is hot flash. It's like male menopause. Wow. They have a hot flash symptoms. Sometimes this can cause fatigue. Um, those are sort of immediate symptoms that one may experience with the hormone injections. Th those get better. They um, they tend to get better over time, but mm -hmm. uh, many of these patients get adjusted to this actually. I see. Uh, and this can be an ongoing side effect. You know, uh, as long as they're on the hormonal treatment. Hmm. The, the other, there's long-term, um, you know, side effects of these treatments as well. You know, including uh, uh, effect on the bone health, uh, cardiovascular health, um, their endocrine functions. Um, it get affected, um, and also, um, you know, these treatments can cause. Um, what they call gynecomastia, which is the uh, enlargement of the breast tissue uh -huh. as well. So, so oftentimes they can cause pains and uh, irritations, some discomforts as well. 
Mm -hmm. And what about sexual function? Are people able to have uh, erections and and function sexually, or or is that sort of diminished, or does the libido go away? Does libido goes away. Uh, With the hormone injection, the libido goes away. The psychological desire to have a sexual affair, um, it it gets down. It goes away. I imagine that's got to be difficult for some of your patients and their partners. That's correct, yep. Uh We counsel our patients on that. Yeah. So, um, well, I guess uh, I guess things are important if you're trying to live longer, uh, but quality of life is also important. So I'm wondering how that, you know, it sounds like some of these situations may be a little uh, elective or borderline if the only thing that's happening is a rising PSA, right? And there isn't cancer, and do I want to have these side effects? What's your advice for such patients? So it's, uh, it sort of depends on the setting, um, as I mentioned, um, you know, in patients who, uh, you know, who has limited life expectancy, um, you know, with other medical problems. Um, if the only issue is the rising PSA, I usually don't recommend uh, initiating these hormonal treatments um, mm-hmm. because although it is effective in achieving short-term goals, such as lowering the PSA, controlling the, you know, disease progression, um, it's never been shown to improve uh, outcome uh, in their survival. Survival, uh-huh. survival outcome, exactly. So, you know, there are multiple factors uh, to consider whenever we make these treatment decisions. Um, really in patients who are young, otherwise, you know, um, no other medical issues, if their PSA is rising rapidly, Okay, we have to follow these patients very carefully because they are unfortunately destined to develop metastatic disease. Uh, and sometimes giving them hormonal treatment can delay the time to metastasis, um, can you know, positively, uh, positively affect the outcome uh, over time. So uh, there are a lot of things to consider whenever we make these treatment decisions. Right. And you say that sometimes the urologists make that decision without your involvement. Is that right? Yeah, oftentimes. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So I, I guess then that, that ship has sailed uh, for those patients, right? Are there any therapies which can stimulate the libido and potentially, you know, have surgical help to have erections? Or really, once you're on these therapies, you know, you've really just got to be resigned to a less less functional, less sexual life in that way. I wish I can have a magic drug to stimulate their testosterone or give them their uh, libido back. Um, But what I often recommend to our patients is that uh, to stay physically active, exercise, good balanced diet, um, stay active uh, physically as much as they can. Um, And, uh, you know, that's sort of what I recommend. Right. And I guess... uh, Counseling can include helping people to appreciate other ways of physical expression of uh, affection that doesn't necessarily require, uh, you know, classical sexual activity involving the penis, I suppose. Yeah. Well, challenging, uh, challenging, I guess. Um, So uh, then we've got these patients where there actually is a recurrence either locally or distantly. And I guess for prostate cancer, unless things have changed since I was trained, uh, the classic place for metastasis is in the bones, right? That's correct. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, you know, in patients who, are, who have rising PSA, I always, you know, ask them whether they have a new bone pain because, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, about 90% of our patients have cancer, uh, cancer metastasis in the bones. So they will usually present with uh, low back pain, worsening of the back pain, mid-back pain, or, you know, any other bones um, that will prompt a, a further evaluation. And some of your patients are probably athletic and they may want to just say, oh, my arm's hurting because I worked out or my back or something like that, right? Right, yeah. Yeah. Um, How long in general, in somebody who has a rising PSA, uh, what is the um, 
how much time can one expect from the hormonal therapies uh, before the hormonal therapies don't work as well anymore? Mm-hmm. So, you know, the time it takes um, to develop metastatic disease simply by the rising PSA is usually about five to seven years. Actually, there's a study that was done at Johns Hopkins. They followed these patients who have rising PSA and they watched how long it took them to develop cancers on the scan. And, um, you know, it takes about five to seven years. The thing is we can, as you mentioned, uh, we can use, you know, hormonal treatment in between to delay the time or not. Uh, you know, we can certainly talk about that. Um, you know, uh, so it's five to seven years if you're not on hormonal treatment. Correct. Right? Mm-hmm. Wow. So how much longer can you get if you're on the hormonal treatment? Do you so think? the studies have shown that uh, by adding secondary hormonal treatment on top of hormone injections, okay, this can actually delay uh, time of development met- uh, metastatic disease by about two years, actually. Wow. Uh, by adding a hormonal uh, pill. Wow. And. and- what is the hormonal pill as opposed to the – you said the injections are these things that turn off your pituitary gland and the pituitary gland no longer tells the testis to make uh, testosterone, right? That's correct. So what does the pill do? The pills are actually – they're working at the what we call receptor level of the prostate cancer cells, okay? These are what we call androgen receptor blockade, okay? So if you think about um, the prostate cancer growth, uh, there's always a signal coming in from the, uh, from the testosterone, and this testosterone binding this androgen receptor in the prostate cancer cells. And this, prostate, uh, and this androgen receptor, they go into the nucleus, they, they turn the genes to, to tell them to grow, grow, and grow, and forming a mass. That's how the cancer spread. The thing is, these medications can block at the receptor level uh, of the androgen receptor, and thus it can turn off the signal to grow. Hmm. Fascinating. Uh, I'm going to want to take this up in the second half, but right now we're going to have to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about prostate cancer and early phase clinical trials with Dr. Joseph Kim. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, proud partner in personalized medicine developing tailored treatments for cancer patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about melanoma. While melanoma accounts for only about 4% of skin cancer cases, it causes the most skin cancer deaths. When detected early, however, melanoma is easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments for melanoma. The goal of the Specialized Programs of Research Excellence in Skin Cancer, or SPORE grant, is to better understand the biology of skin cancer with a focus on discovering targets that will lead to improved diagnosis and treatment. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Joseph Kim, and we've been discussing prostate cancer. Um, Joe, uh, before the break, you were telling me about these additional pills, which, if I understand you, block the effect of testosterone on the cells at the cellular level, right? That's correct. Well, why, why don't you use that in the front rather than turning off the testosterone altogether? That's a very good question. There are actually a lot of research going on to answer that question, actually. Uh-huh. So what we know is that in recent years is that we actually we used, we used to use agents in later stage, but now actually we are using these agents in the early newly diagnosed metastatic prostate cancer. Mm-hmm. So before, we used to give them hormone injection for patients with newly diagnosed metastatic prostate cancer, but now we're actually adding secondary treatments, such as hormone pills I, I talked to you about, 
It can be in the form of chemotherapy or radiation therapy. There are a lot of new developments that have happened in recent years. But we do use uh, hormonal pills in early uh, setting, um, but not in localized setting, though. I see. And, and do, the, do the hormone pills <clears throat> have fewer or different side effects from the injections? I would say actually additive to a hormone injection, actually. It, it adds a little more hot flashes. Sometimes mm. this can raise blood pressure. Uh, it does come with a bag of side effects, unfortunately. I see. So you would never use the pills by themselves? Correct. Not by themselves. Uh, was that ever studied or nobody uh, wants to try take that risk? Uh, I don't think it's been studied as a single agent uh, because the hormone injection has been around for a long period of time, and that's been the backbone of the treatment. And it's for very effective. Cancer. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't sound like the side effects of the pills would necessarily be better. Correct. Gotcha. That, that's too bad. Okay, so, so now you've got your patient. Uh, potentially who's been on maybe double hormonal therapy. Is that right? That's correct. And and unfortunately, their cancer might be getting worse. Either it's newly metastatic, it sounds like, or or the metastases have gotten worse. Uh, you know, when I was training, there weren't a lot of treatments for such patients because I was taught that chemotherapy didn't work for prostate cancer. And once the hormone therapy failed, then you were talking about, you know, supportive care, palliative care, palliative, you know, treating symptoms and stuff. That's not the case anymore, right? It's not the case anymore. Um, you know, really in recent years, we have, you know, about five, six new agents were approved um, this past decade, actually, in treatment of metastatic hormone-resistant uh, prostate cancer, which is, in my view, is a lethal form of prostate cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, we have new chemotherapy. Um, I know that chemotherapy, um, about uh, 15 years ago, um, there was the only chemotherapy that was available in treating metastatic prostate cancer. Uh, but we have a different form of chemotherapy different hormonal uh, oral agents um, and also another intravenous uh, radiation treatment uh, to treat patients with uh, you know cancers in the bone how do you give radiation intravenously that is basically a what we call radionuclear uh, radionucleotide um, that is you know because the cancer uh, the, the bone metastases are very common in patients with the prostate cancer and they you know, have a lot of complication from the bone metastasis, needing radiation sure. treatment, core compression, you know, fractures, uh, a lot of complications, right? So, you know, these medications are used, um, intra- given intravenously. Uh, it's usually done by nuclear medicine physicians. Uh, and uh, it's, these medications can target the cancer growing in the bone. Whenever there's a bone turnover, this medication will go to this area and deliver the high-energy radiation wow. in the bone metastasis. Um, and uh, this medication has been shown to improve survival, palliate your symptoms. So in a way, it's a very effective uh, treatment we have. Mm-hmm. And does that radiation affect normal tissue as well? Actually, uh, this is designed to target the bone only. So it does not go to other visceral organs. It does not go to other uh, uh, Tissues. So the side effects are few. They are very minimal. Wow. That's very exciting. I didn't know about that. Um, okay. Well, that's, that's certainly cool. And uh, you, what are some of the other treatments or kinds of treatments that have recently been, more recently been approved? So in terms of approvals concerned, you know, um, there are different generations of this androgen receptor antagonist. Right. Uh, the new agents. The hormone pills. The hormone pills. Hormone pills. And they tend to have a little bit better side effect profile than the prior ones. Uh, and, uh, you know, in large trials, they've been shown to improve survival. So there are different generations of hormonal pills. Um, there are other agents in development in prostate cancer. 
other. They are not approved therapy. Uh, I'm not sure if I can talk about you know investigation agents or not, but uh, there are clearly a lot of um, research going on to study uh, newer agents uh, to treat prostate cancer. Uh, unless you're under confidentiality <clears throat> requirements from any particular study you're doing, we're, we're certainly able to talk about research you're doing if there's something interesting. So I think uh, in recent years, you know, what we know about prostate cancer is that, um, you know, not all prostate cancers are lethal, but clearly there are subgroup of patients who have very little phenotype of the prostate cancer. Right. So what they what investigators did is that they looked at the whole what we call genomic sequencing of metastatic prostate cancer. The DNA, basically. DNA, exactly. They sequenced the DNA and they identified that about uh, twenty percent of the patients with metastatic prostate cancer harbor mutations in a genes called uh, PRCA, ATM. Those are the genes that are involved in DNA repair uh, mechanism. Okay, hold on. You, you're throwing a lot of letters at me. So you got you're throwing out some letters that uh, refer to particular genes, right? Right. And these genes are mutated in these patients? They are mutated in these patients. And these uh, are genes that make proteins that would usually help fix DNA if it's broken, right? That's correct. Uh, did I get you right? Right. Okay, so now we are learning, if I understand you correctly, that about 20% of prostate cancer patients, the prostate cancer has mutation in one or more of these genes that means that they can't repair their DNA so well? Is right. that right? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, 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 so what? Why do I care about that? So, um, you know, uh, what we do for this group of patients is that, uh, you know, these patients actually tend to respond quite well to a new drug called orgoparp inhibitor. Okay, and okay, a this PARP is inhibitor. PARP inhibitor, mm -hmm. uh, and actually there are some approved uh, PARP inhibitors in treatment of other malignancies such as okay. breast cancer or ovarian cancer. What we are learning is that about 20% of uh, our patients with prostate cancer may drive benefit from this class of medication. So there are several clinical trials to to look into this question. Uh huh. So do they get these? Um, I guess you call them PARP inhibitors. Do they receive them? as a single agent or are you, are you giving them with other drugs? So we give them with other drug with the um, actually hormone injections because hormone injections, they don't go away. Uh, patients with metastatic prostate cancer, they remain on hormone injections for the rest of their life. Okay. And we are adding this PARP inhibitor on top of the hormone injections. I see. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to understand this. I know these PARP inhibitors, um, you know, they further inhibit the DNA repair, right? Is Correct. That, right? Mm -hmm. And so then if the DNA is all messed up, then the cell will die, I guess, Correct. right? Mm -hmm. uh -huh. But in some cases, uh, as I recall, for some cancers, you use the PARP inhibitor in association, you know, with something that will damage the DNA and make the damage worse. That's, that's not the case in what you're telling me. In a way, I think we can add another medications to further damage the DNA mm -hmm. to lead more effective, um, you know, the cancer cell death. But uh, to start off, we need to understand what the side effect profile is of this agent. All by itself. Therapy by itself. Gotcha. And we want to understand, better understand the efficacy of these uh, agents. Clearly, there are several trials combining PARP inhibitor with other agents. I um, see. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And so are these trials limited to a uh, gentleman whose cancer is shown to be deficient in one of these DNA repair enzymes or mutated in one of these DNA repair enzymes? Mm -hmm. So it depends on the design of the trial and the question we are asking in the trial. Clearly, there are trials that are ongoing that are selecting patients uh, with these mutations. Mm -hmm. Okay, So if you have a mutation, you can participate. If you don't, unfortunately, you cannot participate. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, It doesn't also, sound like you'd be missing out because it's probably know, it's, not appropriate. Correct, exactly. Why it's waste good, your time? Right, exactly. That's right. not a good match. That's right. how I frame it. Um, but for patients... 
even if they don't have a mutation, um, you know, one can give this medication in combination with another medication to see if they can overcome this limitation. I see. Gotcha. Now, I know when you were recruited to Yale, which was a, a little bit before I was, you came from the National Cancer Institute, if I recall, mm -hmm. and uh, you were very interested in what we call early phase drug development. Um, and you wear two hats here, right? You you participate with uh, with urologic oncology, and you're part of the group that's really developing very very early phase clinical trials, right? That's correct. Uh huh. And that that has its own challenges. Can you tell us what? what that's like to, some of these drugs have never been put in a human. Right. So, you know, the clinical trial, as you know, is the main engine of oncology. Sure. And what I mean by that is and that's the only way we can advance the field by bringing novel therapy to our patients um, who otherwise have no other uh, good treatment options. Um, and, uh, you know, this is the only way we can sort of advance the field by finding better treatments. Um, the challenges would be, you know, our patients tend to be a little bit sicker and they are very unfortunate cases um, because they sort of go through different standard therapies and they have no other options left. And uh, we go to them and we talk about these novel therapies. Novel means novel, new, does not always mean effective. Right. Does not always mean that um, this is it, you know, for the patient, right? So we have to have a really good balanced discussion with our patients. And, you know, whenever I talk about trials, I talk to them about their alternative standard options, if any. Uh, and we talk about the study design and the clinical trials. Um, so... You know, it does uh, bring a lot of unique challenges, you know, for patients and, uh, you know, for, um, in the field. Yeah, I mean, I know I've, I've read studies where patients who participate in these early phase trials and the doctor told them that, well, we're really, we're really just trying to study the side effects uh, and it's unlikely that this will actually uh, help your cancer. And then when they interview the patient, the patient says, you know, what, what do you think you might get us, they say, well, I might live longer, I might be cured. And there's often, uh, it's not clear whether that's just what the patient, you know, wants to believe or needs to believe, or whether that's what they understood from what the doctor was saying. Do, do you have any experience yeah, no. with that? So I think we have to be smart about how to find those trials for our patients. You know, um, that's why we do. We want to give them hope. Exactly. I mean, we don't want to just put random drug, you know, for the patient that, that I'm facing. Uh, I think we want to have a better understanding of patients, you know, um, uh, genetic uh, profile uh, and to see if a certain drug can be a uh, you know, better option, you know, for this patient. Um, I think we need to have a better understanding about their, you know, uh, patient's disease status. Actually. Mm -hmm. So how do you identify a drug that may be particularly interesting, like you started studying this PARP inhibitor? Mm -hmm. So uh, as I mentioned, uh, we, we do actually what we call tumor profiling for our patients. You know, what it is is that from a biopsy sample uh, of the tumor, uh, we actually sequence the DNA and we sort of identify what kind of mutations this tumor has. If the patient's, if the patient's tumor has a specific mutations that we think that this drug X may be effective, okay, then we offer the trial uh, with that medication. I see. Um, so we try to do a good match, you know, for our patients with the trial. Is every mutation that you find a critical mutation for the cancer, that if you block it, uh, the cell will die? It's hard to say. I think that, um, you know, uh, we try to make uh, some predictions uh, depending on the prevalence and uh, what the, you know, biology is of the mutation, uh, but it's not always the case, unfortunately. Right, and, and I have to imagine that for certain mutations that are particularly rare, uh, you know, as a scientist here you know, at Yale, for example, you might see one in five years. You can't really do a study about that. That's correct. Uh-huh. Yeah. 
So it does require a lot of teamwork. Oftentimes, we do a uh, crop group trials uh, with other institutions who are throughout the country um, to find these rare mutations um, and uh, still be able to give them a, tr a treatment that may be uh, more effective. Right. So you have to sort of develop your own career and then play in the sandbox very well with everybody else. It's, it's kind of like a village trying to help this field. That's correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the most exciting thing coming down the pike for these patients who, who have whose cancer has failed to to stay in check after all this time and all these treatments. Anything th really exciting? I think for prostate cancer, um, as I mentioned, there are a lot of research going on using uh, this PARP inhibitor. Uh, and there's a couple of um, agents that have earned actually what they call breakthrough therapy designation for mm. prostate cancer. Um, and uh, you know we have several trials um, using those agents in combination with other conventional therapies. So uh, those are quite promising. Um, again, we're looking for patients with the mutation uh, in this you know, DNA repair pathways. And we also have a trials uh, that uh, will still allow patients even without, the, without those mutations. So uh, I think uh, we're trying to advance to expand um, the, the, the benefit of these agents to a greater population. Dr. Joseph Kim is Associate Professor of Internal Medicine and Medical Oncology at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.